Hey everyone, obviously I am obsessed with podcasts. I listen to them while I do everything throughout my day. And that means I go through a lot of podcasts. So I'm always looking for new recommendations. So from time to time, I'm going to be sharing with you some podcasts that I think you guys would also enjoy. And one of those is Lady Parts, all one word podcast. It is about women's health. We are living in a time of trying to be more educated about our health, and this podcast really talks about the science behind women's health, things like endometriosis, menstrual cycles, all that stuff that used to be kind of taboo to talk about. Well, now there's a podcast for that, and it's hosted by Andrea, who is very sweet, and it's really well produced. So you can download Lady Parts anywhere that you are listening to Antidote Stories in Medicine. Give them a listen. Give them a share. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to another week of Antidote Stories in Medicine. I had made some pretty big promises with having James from The Flying Snake coming back this week, and I had recorded that episode, but it seems like my amateur audio editing skills are really not up to the task of finishing that episode, so he is going to come back and re-record with me. Also, as I was listening to it, I realized that we had recorded that episode on a Friday night after I had given my notice at my old job. And it ended up being a little bit tumultuous and I had had some wine and I listened to this recording. It was like, oh, I am so annoying. I don't want to listen to me. So you probably don't want to listen to me. It was just kind of a mess. So (laughs) they're really good stories and I really want you guys to hear them, but I also don't want you to murder me. So (laughs) we're going to save that for another time. So this week is going to be a really great nurse practitioner who is doing rural primary care. And we have heard incredible stories of rural medicine from all the way around the world in Australia. And now we get to hear what it's like in rural America. And it's amazing to listen to the healthcare challenges that people face in all these different cultures where In Australia, insurance isn't a problem, but for us here in America, insurance is such a huge deal. It is such a mountain for us to overcome, and for many people, we can't overcome it. But as providers, we are always fighting that fight. And Jeff is a DMP. He is a doctor of nursing practice, and he is always advocating for his patients, and he is here to talk about what he does. But first, I want to just say thank you to several new reviews that we have gotten on iTunes. Thank you so much. That means so much. People really loved Rich and Mira's episode. I really appreciate everyone that has been sharing it. I know people tend to love the EMS episodes. I am going to try and get you some more awesome guests in the future. So please keep sharing it so more people listen and decide that they want to talk to me too. (laughs) Okay, so... This week, I'm really happy to have Jeff. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's nice to be here. Thank you. So you have been an NP for a while. How long have you been practicing? 
Uh, about seven years. I graduated from a master's program in 2011 and started practicing in a rural setting in, uh, in the Midwest and did both uh, family medicine and urgent care, which kind of sucked my soul away. <laughs> if you do urgent care for any length of time, um, you get tired of saying the same things over and over again. Yeah. Uh, after that, I moved up to a metropolitan area and worked in bariatric medicine, in particular for a bariatric surgical uh, center. And I was there for a few months, and then an opportunity came up to move to an independent practice state. Mm. And I jumped at that opportunity and have not left. <laughs> How do you like working in the independent practice state versus a supervised role? It's very different. Mm -hmm. When I was doing family practice, my collaborating physician wouldn't do certain procedures, procedures that I had been trained to do. So since that provider would not do them or would not permit me to do them so that he could do them himself and generate the revenue and the work RVU credit for it, I kind of got frozen out of doing some things. On the family practice side, the collaborating uh, physician did not believe in medically managed weight loss. He thought it mm. was a waste of time. And so we did zero medically managed weight loss. He left it at, it's a math equation. Mm. Lower the calories in, increase the calories out, and everything will be fine. And as we know, that's not, that's an oversimplification yeah. of uh, the changes that occur. Yeah. What kind of procedures would he not do, if you don't mind me asking? Um, well, in the urgent care setting, I'd come in, I'd have a patient, uh, without diabetes with an ingrowing toenail that the, had just driven that patient crazy to the point that they decided at eight o'clock at night, they needed to have the dang thing removed. Right. Well, they'd come in and, and honestly, it's about a 15 minute procedure. Yeah. The longest part of the procedure is getting the nerve block yep. uh, to take, especially if there's any... Uh, inflamed tissue in there. Mm -hmm. So I put in the nerve block, went on and saw two other patients, came back, spent the next seven minutes getting the nail off and all done. And then and this was a Saturday evening, I think. And come uh, my next shift on a Tuesday, got my uh, knuckles wrapped with a ruler uh, saying, hey, uh, you're not going to be doing that anymore in urgent care setting. I don't do that here. So you don't get to do that in the urgent care. Just send them to me. Hmm. Okay. So, so Interesting. that being said, the, the biggest difference is that if I'm trained to do it and I'm comfortable doing it, I can manage the disease, do the procedure, whether it's an excision, IND. It's an incision and drainage of like an abscess. Yeah, exactly. I can do those without uh, a physician telling me, no, I don't like doing those, so we're not going to be doing them in this setting. Right. For people that don't know, nurse practitioners have to work under a physician's license as a collaborating physician in some states, but not all states. So sometimes we can be completely independent. We can have our own practices. We can do whatever we want within the scope of our training and license. And that's where I work now. We can do that. And 
I've touched on this before. Certain physicians groups and certain physicians don't like that. They think it's a liability to them. They think it is bad for patient outcomes, even though studies have shown repeatedly that that is not the case. And it's very frustrating when you're being supervised to be told, no, you can't do something that you know how to do or to go and do this work and be told, oh, someone has to sign off on your chart even though they did not see the patient or in some states like a nurse practitioner will go see a patient for an admission to a nursing home and then a physician has to go out within 48 hours to see that patient to redo basically the admission. Otherwise, it doesn't count. It's like there's a lot of weird rules with it. Physician assistants have to always be supervised by a physician. Nurse practitioners don't depending on the state. So it's a very controversial subject in medicine. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and then the practice I work now is a rural health clinic. And there are two physicians that I work very closely with and two physician assistants and one other nurse practitioner. If I have a question, I absolutely go and speak to my physician colleagues. Yeah. And they are happy to help. It's not like anybody ever practices in a vacuum. Oh, yeah. And that's the frustrating part about the collaborative practice agreements is they're very limiting to patients' access to care. Right. And not even so far as collaborative practice, if you stop and think about what we have to go through to get a patient who needs diabetic shoes, uh, CMS regulations require that the, yes, require that if physician be managing the patient's diabetic care in order for the patient to receive diabetic shoes, the order has to come from a physician. So you end up with patients who need supplies desperately if we're going to try and help them keep their toes if they've got wounds and they can't get them. Right. The way we do it in our practice is if it's my patient and I'm managing their disease and we need to address foot issues, I will collaborate with the physician in the practice and together we will be managing the diabetic care. Mm-hmm. I'll take primary responsibility for the day-to-day management and then in the documentation, and I'll and I'll speak with the physician about what my plans are, and in the documentation, I explain very clearly that the diabetic plan of care has been developed and agreed upon with the collaborating physician and that physician will also sign that chart. So you, you still have some small hoops to jump through. Right. But it makes the experience much more difficult for the patient. Yeah. And that comes into play too with things like home care orders. So a physician has to sign home health care orders for nurses. A nurse practitioner cannot or a physician assistant. And it's so frustrating because this patient has never seen the physician in my practice They don't like the Uh physician where I used to work. I changed (laughs) my job. They don't know who that guy is. Uh, And and I can't put in the order. I have to have them do it for me. It's it's frustrating to get them the services they need. And I'm not sure how we're able to do it because the physician doesn't always have to see face-to-face to to sign off on it. Yeah, they don't. In our case. Uh, They review the chart. I'll sign the order. The physician will co-sign the order certifying that my assessment is accurate and that they agree with the patient needs. Yeah. 
we send it on to public health or to the home health agency and they take it from there. Yeah. You fill out the face-to-face form, which is then signed by the physician that says that the assessment was done by a NP or PA under their right. in their practice. It is all of this bureaucratic nonsense that we have to jump through when I did all the work initially. It's just, it boggles my mind. And it's it's frustrating. So. <laughs> and and I think patients understand it and they appreciate our frustration with it. I'll explain that I know it's a, a giant pain in the tuchus for them that they have to come back uh, in the case of shoes to have one face to face with the physician to evaluate if I if the physician doesn't have time to come in to the room to do the exam on the feet while the patient is already there. Right. So you're actually adding more financial burden to an already burdened healthcare system. Right. Yeah. Because they have another visit on their hands that they have to do yep. deal with. Yeah. So I'm all about independent practice. Unfortunately, it's not a federal thing. So it's state by state oh. and not everything is uh, caught up with it. But you work in a very, very, very different setting than where I have ever worked. I've always worked in very urban East Coast settings. Uh-huh. What is it like? I mean, you must have a lot of a lot of different challenges. You you learn how to practice a lot of clinical medicine. Explain what you mean by that. You may be used to having a patient that comes in, you know that you need to order this test, this test, this test for lab work to continue with plan of care. So mm-hmm. you order the test and the patient either waits in your office or or waits at home. And you get the results, you call the patient, and the patient disposition is, is whatever's appropriate based on those results. Mm-hmm. I may not have results for 24 hours. Mm-hmm. And in which case, you're doing an exam and evaluating all those, all those signs and symptoms of the patient to make the decision, yes, this person needs to be evaluated by a surgeon today. This patient can wait until tomorrow. This patient needs to head head to an emergency department so they can be transported to a tertiary care facility or or more definitive care facility. In our case, we have a a loose affiliation with a state university with a medical school attached. And if we've got an extraordinarily sick patient, they've got to go up there. We don't perform surgery in our hospital. So if a patient comes in with a suspected appendicitis, our plan of care is very different. We'll start the lab work. We'll get the CT. We'll get them down to the emergency department simply so they can be transported via ambulance to this tertiary facility. Mm-hmm. Now, in some cases, we'll call the ambulance and have the ambulance come straight to our clinic and pick them up from the clinic. Yeah. That saves them an emergency charge. Right. And for us, it helps the clinic out because we're all billed under the same tax ID number. Medicare and insurance companies will pay for one date of service on that tax ID number in a 24-hour period unless there is a completely separate and distinct service. Mm -hmm. So uh, we pay attention to our exam and learn how to trust hunches. And sometimes we're wrong and we've sent somebody on that we didn't need to send on. But for the most part, uh, we don't see people being undertreated. How far away is your major medical center that has surgical capabilities? Via uh, normal vehicle, one hour and 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got life flight capability, and they can be 
in the air and on our pad in about 30 minutes from the time the call goes out. Wow. Now, do you have a lot of Medicare and Medicaid patients? I would say probably 60% of our practice is a government-based insurance, whether it's uh, Medicare, Medicaid. Wow. We all have issues wherever we practice, whether it's a rural setting or an urban setting, yeah. with patients having financial access to care. And that is probably the biggest challenge where I practice versus where you may practice. Yeah. In an urban setting, you have a lot more opportunities for for a commercial insurance to be accessible. The income and employment opportunities in our area are very few, primarily agricultural or industrial. And the insurance programs offered by these companies are often cost prohibitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll have we learn how to access the medications or services that are needed that don't cost significant amounts of money. One of my favorite sites that I use with patients is needymeds.org. It has every patient assistance program available for every medication. You search the, you go to the site, you input the name of the medication, and it will pull up the options for the pharmaceutical assistance, whether they've got a copay card, uh, all of those things and, and these resources to help patients. Another limitation on care that we have is access to specialty. Mm-hmm. We'll have outreach clinic that comes down. We have a psychiatrist that comes down. She just doubled her availability and is now available twice a month in our facility. It may be a four-month wait to see neurology, nephrology. Oh, my God. And so you're doing a lot of patient management between the time you recognize the need and the time they can get in. Now, that being said, we can kind of backdoor it and make a call to the facility and speak with the provider and see if they can squeeze the patient in a little bit sooner, grease the wheels, as it were. Yeah. And in some cases, we absolutely do that. But otherwise, they're waiting for two, three, four months to see a specialist. Durham specialty, we there is a, a clinic in the area that right now is taking zero new patients because their wait list is about six months out. Wow. It's just not available. And, you know, you mentioned the jobs of the people in the area. Those are jobs that are very taxing on the body and on your health. Mm-hmm. I imagine there's probably a lot of ortho and just lifestyle-induced yeah. injury and illness. I'll have patients come in that have told me what their veterinarian has told them to do for an injury or an illness that I then need to care for. And you have to be careful because these are friends and neighbors. You don't really want to step on step hard on people's toes. Mm. But I have suggested on more than one occasion that maybe veterinary care and human care should stay a little bit separated. <laughs> Uh, you know, for general injury stabilization, the principles are the same. Yeah. But when you're talking medications, maybe you don't want to be injected with a cow's antibiotic. Maybe not. Just, just a suggestion. <laughs> oh, gosh. So you get all sorts of great stories. Yeah. About what's going to work and what's not going to work and what somebody down the street told them, but they weren't sure that they could believe him because of something that happened 10 years ago. It, it, you hear everything. How is the health literacy there? Can you ask that a little bit more specifically? Because there's, there's a really broad. <laughs> that, is, that is a very broad topic. Yeah. So 
Do you find that patients are fairly educated when it comes to the conversations you're having about their healthcare needs? Or is this a lot of like, you know, you shouldn't be drinking this much soda? Or is it this is more of an educated population? They're just kind of we see more both, rural or both both types. I would say in the area where I practice the high school graduation rate is probably somewhere between uh, 40 and 70%. Okay. A lot of folks don't finish high school and get a GED. And so in our training, as you know, we're taught to teach to the level of our patient. Yeah. And so I start with a sixth to seventh grade, eighth grade explanation and if they start to look bored, like like I'm speaking way below them, I up that. People are somewhat educated about their health, but they don't see the value oftentimes in preventative medicine. Yeah. That what we're doing today is going to help them five years, 10 years down the road uh, using aspirin in primary prevention. There is no immediate benefit to that. That benefit, we've seen studies that show that benefit really doesn't come for five to 10 years mm -hmm. with routine use of the aspirin. So you're telling somebody to take a medication that sometimes irritates their stomach that they're not getting any relief from. And we can tell them aspirin's the miracle drug. It can reduce your risk for certain cancers. It reduces the risk for stroke and heart attack. Uh, it helps with some platelet inhibition. That doesn't mean anything to them. It's not the same thing as they came in with a bacterial infection requiring antibiotic treatment. They're going to take this pill. They're going to take it for this length of time, and they will get better. The value of primary prevention, I think, uh, is lost because this is such, uh, I don't want to say an indigent community, but you have such limited access to financial resources that they guard them preciously. Yeah. When you think, it, and there's one grocery store in the area where I work. So you've got a bit of a food desert anyway. You've got a uh, major, I, I don't want to say major city, but uh, a smaller city within 45 minutes to an hour in any direction with different access to groceries. But a lot of people don't want to make that drive or can't afford to make that drive mm -hmm. or have to find a ride to get there. Yeah. There's no, there's, we got a, a message the other day that Uber is just now available. <laughs> uh, and it's a big deal mm -hmm. because these folks who had no, no way to get to a store or get in for care. Yeah. Now I can say, Hey, get an Uber. Yeah. We do a lot of uh, home monitoring in patient reported home monitoring. Mm -hmm just because you have to meet them where they are. Yeah. And in your documentation, you're telling them or you're stating, I would like to see this patient back in two weeks. If the patient is unable to attend the visit or find transportation, then I've requested that the patient call in with an update on their blood pressure or their mood, whatever it, whatever it may be. Yeah. You have to meet them where they are. Yep. It is such a contrast to what I do. It's, it's really incredible. I work in a very, very wealthy population. You know, you said, oh, financial hardships are everywhere. And it's the clinic that I had been at. That was not the case. Uh -huh. You know, one woman, we were talking about the new shingles vaccine, and she had already had the other one. When I was like, well, I'm not sure what your insurance coverage will be for this vaccine, but it's supposed to be better 
at preventing shingles and better at preventing post-herpetic neuralgia, the nerve pain you can get. So the CDC does recommend, even though you've already been vaccinated, you should get it. However, you've already had the vaccine. If it's not covered by your insurance, I would say, don't bother. You're covered, you know, until you do get coverage. She goes, well, whatever, I'll just pay out of pocket. And I was like, yeah. oh my God, <laughs> like yeah. this, that's where I work. I mean, if you say go get a blood pressure cuff and go get a gym membership, they'll go get a personal trainer. Like it's mind boggling. And there's concierge services uh-huh. for things because they want the best. It's crazy. It's really crazy. I I have a lot of, pe- uh, a lot of people whom I advise to go walk around the grocery store. Yeah. Just because they can't afford a gym membership and it's cold outside when it's zero degrees, 20 degrees, windy. People don't really want to exercise outside no. if they want to exercise at all. And a lot of folks will say, well, I work hard at work. That's my exercise. Yeah. I fall back on, well, that's just bonus. <laughs> I tell people YouTube yoga. I love YouTube yoga. You can do it for 20 minutes. You can do it in your house, in your bedroom, and no one's judging you if you fall over and it can really help with that back pain and all this other stuff and it's free. <laughs> Well, and you get patients who are used to having a pill for everything. Yes. That problem we do have too. <laughs> well, and, and opioids in particular have been yeah. so beating the dead horse. It's it's in the news everywhere. But in these communities, it's also a source of revenue for patients. Mm-hmm. I've gotten to the point where if I have a patient who's on routine opioids, they're going to get a urine drug screen every time. If you're managing diabetes, are you not going to get an A1C? Are you not going to get a microalbumin every year? Are you are you not going to check their renal function? Right. The same thing. I'm monitoring the treatment that's being provided. Yeah. And the number of patients who get upset about that uh, is surprising. Yeah, that's a... It's a whole other show. That's a, <laughs> and I'm gonna I'm gonna do a show on the opioid problem. Having worked in addiction and then worked in EMS too, it's uh, yeah, that's a whole other show. Yeah. So, any cases in particular that kind of have stuck out as being, you know, either particularly challenging or particularly rewarding in that challenging environment? And of course, well, HIPAA compliance. So yes, everything yes. has been generalized and nothing terribly specific. My first day on the job at a facility, and this has stuck with me, I saw a patient for depression, asked all of the right questions, Mm -hmm. received all of the right answers, no suicidality, no cause for an immediate referral to emergency psychiatric care, Mm -hmm. which in and of itself is challenging. Um, Patient discharged from the clinic to home, I came back to work. So I had started at this facility late in the week, came back to work at the beginning of the week, and the director of uh, emergency services tapped me and asked me if I had heard about this patient. And I kind of cocked my head and said, no, I hadn't seen anything. What's going on? Well, apparently this patient had called their significant other about two hours after the visit and had made some statements that indicated that the patient was planning on harming themselves and then 
went through with it. Oh my God. Um, and it stuck with me, um, because it fell into that same realm as your show with the guys from just from just some podcast. Yeah. There are, there are three kinds of patients. Yeah. There's the type that no matter what you do, they're going to get better. No matter what you do, they're not going to make it. And then the third type is the type that we have the opportunity to intervene and make their life better. I love managing diabetes. I realize that may line me up for some psychiatric um, <laughs> evaluation, but I, I love the challenge and mm -hmm. I love personalization of care yeah. that is available. And many of my patient success stories are, are centered around diabetic management. Patients who have never seen an A1C less than 10 and in six months, they're at goal. Wow. And it's just by changing the conversation and getting the buy-in and explaining that this is why. And often I get the, the response, well, nobody's ever told me that. Yeah. And it's unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, we see a lot of concussions. There was uh, one kiddo in particular who I saw for their fourth concussion. Ugh. And y yeah. Older teenager or younger kid or just... in, in their teenage years. Okay. And because oftentimes the only way out of their financial environments, we're talking cities with populations less than 3000 people. Yeah. I'm sure sports are huge. That's their ticket out. There's their ticket to college and you take that away. And that kid is now stuck in a job where they may not be able to get any further than where their parents got mm -hmm. if they're able to get that far at all. Yeah. So being able to get somebody the help that they need and uh, prevent further injury in particular to that child was extremely re rewarding. I was proud to have a coach tell his players that they were not to come to my office for concussion evaluations <laughs> because I would sit them. And we would follow the protocol. We would follow state law on concussion management. The best turnaround from that is their athletic trainer, uh, physical therapist, would tell every parent, don't listen to what he says. Send them here. They're going to get the care they need. Good. Oh, screw that coach, huh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, there, was, there were words exchanged more than once. <laughs> but... It's the little things. A patient who had been on opioids for, um, I want to say, greater than 10 years came back and saw me within the last six months and is completely opioid-free. Wow. Feels better than <laughs> have ever felt. Yeah. And it's just because people kept throwing pills and the patient heard heard the discussion and got the information explaining that this is what's happening to your body this is why you feel like this yeah you can feel better and it it was a long wean but that's a huge huge big success a lot of substance abuse problems in our area and oh, limited yeah. resources for care those are the heartbreaking stories where uh when you have a patient come in that uh starts off telling you how desperately they want to quit drinking and you're having the same conversation month in and month out. And there's not an AA meeting close. There's not a tr an affordable treatment center close. 
their insurance doesn't cover treatment. It's just, it's those kinds of stories are heartbreaking. Do you ever do anything in office like, you know, naltrexone or Campbell or virtual AA meetings or anything like that? We don't really have that ability in mm. our office. There's also some mistrust about telemedicine okay. in our area. They don't, there are a lot of patients that don't feel like it's, uh, they're receiving real care. They're just okay. talking to some stranger on the TV. Got it. That being said, if when I see patients who are on high doses of opioids, they get a prescription for uh, Narcan. Mm -hmm. And our state does not require a prescription to receive Narcan from a pharmacy, which is great. Yeah. And so we have those conversations. We talk about the dangers and what to do if your wife or your husband stops breathing or is not responsive. This is what you need to do. It's such a, the substance use in the area is such a part of socialization mm -hmm. that kind of the middle-aged um, and young adult generations, that's their outlet. The older generation, I'm finding there are fewer people that continue with alcohol use or abuse. I'll hear a lot of, I used to, but oh boy, I sure needed to stop. Yeah, interesting. It's, there was a lot of, you know, opioid addiction in the Northeast and mm -hmm. alcohol abuse. It was funny in an ironic way that we really didn't see any methamphetamines. I'm going to guess that there's probably a lot of meth out where you are. <laughs> there is a lot of methamphetamine out where we are. And again, we're in a unique position as nurse practitioners to meet people where they are. And I don't think that that's always the case with many physicians. Learning how to stop and put on the brakes and take the extra time. And of course, I'm making a generalization. There are plenty of physicians who sure. do stop and do take that kind of time. Yeah, absolutely. But it's been my experience that it's more often that a physician is in and out and doesn't stop to talk. If I see patients uh, with dentition problems, I don't jump out and ask, hey, are you using methamphetamine? Because access to dental care, dental insurance in our area is is scarce. Right. The, I don't know what it's like where you are. Water is not fluoridated where we are. Oh. Because people are afraid of the chemicals that are being put in the water. Mm -hmm. And no amount of public education changes or seems to change the underlying mistrust. Wow. It's, I'm not surprised. You know, it's, it's this thing we learn about when you go through school and you, you see it a little bit in the urban areas, but it is, it's not something I deal with. I keep saying that again. Yeah. And it is something that I feel like we have created kind of as a medical community, wearing the white coat, the, mm -hmm. I know more than you talking down to patients. It's a culture that the providers have created just talking at the patient how are, how is your A1C not better? Are you eating sweets as opposed to, you know, tell me what your meal looks like. Tell me what your day looks like. Mm -hmm. Did you know that rice is a carbohydrate? Because people don't know that. Like <laughs> things like that and how this affects your blood sugar and how fiber plays a role. And I think you can do this and like kind of being a cheerleader. It's all these things that the conversation that you mentioned, not everyone has. One of my favorite lines that I, I tell patients is corn and potatoes do not belong on the same plate. <laughs> it's 
Corn is a vegetable. What do you mean? Yeah. yeah it's and, a carbohydrate. <laughs> and then you hear about shepherd's pie and you, you just have to, you just have to laugh at that point. Yeah. It's cheap. It's cheap food. And that's the problem is to eat healthy costs money. And when that is a matter of, if that's the difference between keeping the lights on or the heat on, they're right. going to go with what works best for them. Right. And meeting people where they are is a huge part of what I think we do very well as nurse practitioners. Yeah. I have an earned doctorate. I introduce myself as doctor. And my next sentence is, I'm a nurse practitioner. Please call me by my first name. Yeah. And immediately set that stage that I am at this exact same place that they are. I am no better. I am no worse. We're in the same spot. And I think we do that as a general rule as nurse practitioners, because that's what we've been doing most of our career mm -hmm. when we've practiced as nurses or when, in your case, when you practice in emergency medicine, we use our first names to help create an immediate bond with the patient. Yeah. Uh, there's something that, and for lack of a better term, intimate about being invited to use a first name. Yeah. And that puts people at ease in, in such an interesting way. It does. And I've had patients, it always happens at the end of the visit, especially like the older generation, usually it's older uh -huh. males. They'll say, okay, you're Christine and you're a nurse practitioner. Should I still call you doctor? You're not a doctor, but, and they get really uncomfortable. <laughs> like, but should I call you miss or what, like, what do I call you? I want to respect you, but Christine seems too informal. And I say, no, please call me Christine. I want you to call me by my first name because I am here to help you and to be your ally in this and to, we're going to work through things together. And I want you to use my first name and I'm going to use your first name because, you know, I want that relationship. I want that good relationship. They feel like they're disrespecting me. And I'm like, no, no, I'm a nurse practitioner. You call us by our first names. And I think it's always really adorable when they do that. <laughs> yeah. When patients realize that we can identify with them, it changes it changes the dialogue mm -hmm. completely. They will tell us things that they would never tell anybody else. Yeah. And I love those moments that patients start talking and they say, I've never told anybody this. I can't believe I'm telling you this. Yeah. And I said, well, you're in a good spot. And then we, we move from there. But it builds a level of trust that is invaluable in that uh, patient-provider relationship. Yeah. You need it because how are you going to move forward? Yep. Anything else that's unique about your job or just that really strikes you about what you do that you find really rewarding? The appreciation, I think the most rewarding thing for me is the appreciation that the community and patients have for the services we provide. We had a, a reasonably dangerous coating of ice overnight, Monday into Tuesday. I had patients that called and canceled on Tuesday morning because of the weather and then would ask to be put back to my nurse so they could ask my nurse if I made it in okay. <laughs> I, and it made us both chuckle, but you real it, it really forces you to look at the 
impact you have on somebody's life and how important you are to them, even without being family. They tell you things that they wouldn't tell their family. Yeah. And they trust us with things that they wouldn't wouldn't trust anybody else with. It's that old adage, there are two people you never lie to, your doctor and your lawyer. (laughs) Yeah, it's so true. And I said, I'm, I'm changing jobs and I have never been so flattered as I have been and I'm not even allowed to tell people where I'm going. And mm-hmm. they said, that's okay. I'll look you up. I'll Google you. Multiple people have said they're following me. And it's, I have never been so touched in my life. Yeah. It, it is so humbling. I, t- yeah. I changed jobs in November and moved to um, a, a smaller community than I had been practicing before. And uh, so far, I think I've seen about a third of my practice has, has made the transition. Wow. That's huge. I keep trying to come up with funnier stories, and honestly, I I don't have them. <laughs> I, I I was thinking of them a couple weeks ago, and thought, oh, I should talk about that, and but they're just people always want to tell funny stories, and I don't know what it is. This is not yeah. a comedy podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is not. <laughs> I, I don't know why everyone is like, oh, I'm, I want to tell funny stories, and I'm like, have you not been listening? This is a very depressing podcast. <laughs> Yeah. So, so to, to finish the story about the patient that that committed suicide. Yeah. And and I won't say the rest of it because it's there'll be too much that's identifiable. Yeah. It's the first patient I had seen at that clinic, and called the patient called their spouse and said, um, "I'm going to be dead by the time you get home, and there's nothing you can do to stop me." Oh my God. And you know you ask you ask all the questions you. You go through the, are, are you actively suicidal? Do you have a plan? What stops you from wanting to harm yourself? And, you know, all right, those questions, right. you get all the right answers. And then first thing in the morning after report, uh, because we would do hospital rounds before clinic, hey, did you hear about? Fast forward two and a half years. The very last patient I saw at that clinic was their spouse. Oh, my God. That was... And apparently had been struggling the whole time. And that was probably the hardest visit I've ever had. Oh, God. Just knowing that that was was who that was. And um, they were there for mood. Oh, oh shit. No, you're not. Oh, you're not. No, you're not. Yeah. So, but it's. It's just amazing what people will put themselves through. Did he know you had seen that day? I shared that at the end of the visit. How did, do you mind ask, do you mind if we keep this in? And Because there's something I actually wanted to share with you after you tell this story that's very similar. Um, how did that go? Horribly uncomfortable. Um, the patient told me about their spouse and uh, once I realized who the patient's spouse was and why they were there, I understood more about what what was going on and disclosed that I had taken care of the patient's spouse. And there was just silence. And, you know, you talk about uh, therapeutic silences. I, I don't know that that was therapeutic, but neither one of us really knew what to say. Right. Um, and after, I swear it was 10 minutes, but I'm sure it was about 30 seconds. The patient said, you know, 
that had been threatened over and over and over again. None of us ever thought that the patient would go through with it. Oh my God. And coming home and seeing that and knowing that the patient had had an appointment and uh, was sent home. I was, the patient is telling me as the patient said that, um, or the spouse. you know how it goes. Yeah, yeah. the spouse said, um, I was angry with you Yeah. for a very long time. Yeah. And um, after having met you and seen you for this visit for, again, a mental health problem, there wasn't anything anybody could have done. And he, um, the patient said, thank you for the time. Oh, my God. Because the patient got an under, had an understanding of what the visit had to have been like because it's this it's the same format you use for mental health visits yeah. uh, when people have depression and it's the same type of documentation and you're asking the same questions and you are trying to reach and probe and with this person not being with their spouse at the time of the visit that was an unknown quantity right and it wasn't until the end of the visit that i figured out who this person was and disclosed so there this person got an unvarnished view of the care that had been provided his spouse right so yeah it was it was very challenging not something i would ever want to repeat no i would imagine <laughs> For, on on any level but that yeah. whole that whole being confronted that being said you have your you have your huge successes that saw a, a child under under 10 days of age that my after evaluating this is what i see this is this is what i think is going on if you see if you see nasal flaring if you see retractions if you see uh, gasping at all right. don't come here call an ambulance and go to the hospital. Yep. Later that evening, the child decompensated, as I was afraid, uh, or as we know, kids, when they decompensate, they're fine until they're not, and right. then they're really not fine. Right. And the kid did amazingly well, and it was just two minutes of education. Yeah. And it's a small community that, that word gets around. You know, one of the nicest bad problems to have is that people can't get in to see you for four weeks. Yeah, that's true. So I just keep opening up more schedule spots. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, when you were telling the story of, of that patient, I was reminded that, um, so actually, sorry. So on Friday was my last day at this clinic. Um, and I took a little bit of time. I took a week off and Saturday morning, I woke up to a text message from my old office manager that patients, and I'm going to be vague, a patient that I saw very regularly 
was involved in a murder-suicide. And mm. my patient was the victim. Another regular patient committed the, the murder. And, of course, it's a family practice, so you know the family mm -hmm. of the victims. And I even knew the cops that were there. And then we found out, based on the news reports, that I had seen the the real victim, you know, in my office maybe two days before. I remember she was a difficult stick, and while the phlebotomist was trying to stick her, I was asking her, I was trying to distract her, so I was like, you know, what are you doing mm -hmm. this week? What are your plans, and what are you doing? And, you know, just how you talk to somebody while they're... I had taken extra time just to talk to her because I knew she was really scared about it, and I was treating her for an infection, and she probably didn't even finish the antibiotics because she was murdered, and it was like, oh my God, what if we had given that guy better mental health treatment that did this? What about this mother? You know, and I know we couldn't have, uh, I didn't see that guy often that did it, but it's because it was a domestic violence situation. It's just like, oh God, in primary That's, care, you have these relationships. Yeah. And when I first, uh, when I first decided that I was going to be a nurse, I had always planned on doing emergency nursing. I, I don't know if it was adrenaline rush or what. And it wasn't until I got into nursing school and had the opportunity at the very at the very end of the bachelor's program, you have the uh, externship or, or basically it's an intensive. You're on one unit assigned with one one nurse, and this is your final clinical experience, and you do that for X number of hours. And I opted for an ER and realized I hated it. <laughs> because I didn't get a connection. Yeah. And that's the that's the piece I love about family medicine is the yep. connection you get to make with people. And you know, you can you can get in the room and they can call you every name in the book cuz they're ticked off at what you what you're telling them and have and need to tell them and they need to hear. Uh the best feeling is when they go out and schedule their follow-up visit. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> they just they've just spent ten minutes telling you how big an a hole you are, and then scheduled the two week follow up. Yeah, because they recognize that what we're doing is for their best interest and and not ours. You know, we've all got the stories, and heck, we've all been there ourselves. And I think when we use our own experiences to some extent when we're caring for our patients. It makes a big difference in the buy-in that you can get. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when you show that you're caring. Yeah, it's it's so easy. And the nice thing about the physician colleagues that I have, they are they are absolutely willing to help talk through things when there's a tough case and hey, what could I have done different or what should I have done different? And yeah, absolutely, we'll talk through it. And you know, sometimes there are things I could have done different. And sometimes they're just nothing different, nothing else to do. Yeah. Well, again, not a comedy podcast, but <laughs> to end on a little bit of a lighter note, what is one of the, uh, what's one of the best compliments you've ever received from a patient or uh, one of the, what's one of the nicest things someone's ever said to you? Um, I don't know that I could pick out one thing in particular. <laughs> for for me the nicest the nicest thing experience that I get is I moved from I moved from my original practice when I moved to the general area where I practice now. Mm -hmm. 
I have patients who are returning to my care that I hadn't seen in three or four years because I'm close again. Oh, that's I'm close enough for them to drive. I'll have patients. I've got several patients that will drive an hour and a half to come in. Wow. So those those are my are my uh, feel good moments and my feel good stories. It's not necessarily about um, helping somebody who has done who has gotten from their A1C down to goal or blood yeah. pressure has been at goal or, or some, or the change in their health and, and the gratitude there. Yes, that's rewarding. And it's great to hear that. But I think the biggest compliment we get as providers is our patients come back to us. Yep. Or I keep, I will hear things in the community. You know, if I seeing a patient from the, for the first time and they say, I, I will ask, so how did you end up finding us? Yeah. And well, so-and-so told me that they see you and their cousin sees you and their mom sees you. <laughs> and they said that you might know what you're doing. And so I should take a listen. Yeah. And my immediate response was, well, you can't trust everything you hear. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they tend to take that uh, pretty well. <laughs> well, I think that's a, that's a happier note to end on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It's always great to talk more about rural medicine and primary care. And primary care, I think, gets shit on a lot. People don't (laughs) realize what we do and that you have to know a little bit about everything and that you're really kind of the the center of everyone's medical care, especially now when certain types of medicine are so accessible for people in certain areas. They kind of forget about their primary care provider and how important it can be. So I agree. But clearly that is not the case for your patients. No, they have, it's, I wouldn't trade what I do for anything. I would miss being in primary care. And there, there are times I joke that I uh, keep the application for a non-healthcare related field filled out in my desk, um, <laughs> just, just for after those really, really crappy days. But at the end of the day, I wouldn't trade what I do yeah. at all. And I don't think any, and most of us would. No. It just means too much. Yeah. You, you can't leave your patients. <laughs> They'd find you. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> Good, bad, or indifferent, they will find you. So thank you, everybody, for listening. If you have been enjoying Antidote Stories in Medicine, please share us on social media. Or you can reach out to us as well. So follow us on Facebook at Antidote Stories in Medicine Podcast. You can join the, the Facebook group, which is Antidote Stories in Medicine group. Follow us on Twitter, Antidotes Pod. My Twitter is Christine the NP. Instagram is Antidotes Podcast. And of course, thank you to Peter Hopkins for our custom music. You can always send me an email at antidotespodcast at gmail.com. If you just have any comments or you want to be on the show as well, Jeff reached out to me. That's how he got on the show. And it's great to talk to people from all over the country, all over the world. And I just, I love hearing from everyone and hearing your unique stories. So please truly reach out. I, I love, you know, hearing what everyone does. So Thank you guys again. I will see you next week with another episode.